Oh, you, you know, I've been looking forward to having Luke and some of his family members and friends with us, and we'll be here tonight, 6 o'clock tonight. It'll be a wonderful night. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. When I graduated from high school, my aunt Sue and my uncle Rich came to celebrate my graduation. And they are people of modest means, and so they're the kind of people that often will find something they have that they already own that they love very much and like and has value, and they will give it to you for a gift. And that's what they did when I graduated from high school. My Aunt Sue had been a student at Grisboom. If you're informed, you know that's an acronym for the Grand Rapids School of Bible and Music. She was a student there, salutatorian of her class, as a matter of fact. And she had an eight-volume theology by Lewis Sperry Chafer that she had as a student, a valuable uh, multi-volume theology. She brought that and she gave it to me as a gift when I graduated from high school. I still have it today, and every once in a while when I go over to my shelves and I, I take one of those volumes off my shelves and I think of my Aunt Sue, and my Uncle Rich is with the Lord now, and I think of their kind gift. Now one of the things in those books, in, in, the, in, the, in the volume on soteriology, which is about salvation, Lewis Perry Chafer wrote this. He wrote 33 things that happen to you the moment that you are converted. 33 things that happen to you the moment that you get saved. Today, I would like to thrill you and I would like to skill you in gospel conversation by just telling you three of those 33 things. And they're found in the first few verses there of our text in Romans chapter 3 and verses 21 through 31. Leon Morris wrote a, uh, wrote a book, wrote a commentary about Romans chapter 3. And about this section, Leon Morris said something like this. He said, this paragraph is the most powerful, the most influential paragraph ever written by anybody in the history of mankind. And we are here today, and this morning, to study Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, which is arguably the most important paragraph ever written in the history of mankind. The paragraph that we're going to study today, it changed the entire world. And it has changed many of your lives. Am I right? Can I get a witness on that? And for those of you who are kind of on the bubble a little bit and you're wondering, maybe that could happen to me. Yes, that could happen to you even today. Your life could be completely and totally transformed, completely rearranged. If you understand and believe, there are two sections here, really. Um, in, in, the, in the text, and I'll just tell you ahead of time what those two sections are so that you kind of have a way of, of thinking about this. Paul is making an argument. We're jumping into the middle of Paul's argument, is his kind of logical argument. And you know that the first three chapters are about... Romans 1, 2, 3 are about... Let's go over that one more time. This is the, uh, this is the outline of Romans. Remember that? I know you had a whole week off, you had a lot of jelly beans last week, and so you're a little slow on your feet, right? So let's try this again. This is the outline of Romans. Romans 1, 2, 3, sin. Let's do that again. Romans 1, 2, 3, sin. And Romans 3, 4, 5, salvation. Okay, so we know that Paul says the first step into the heart of the plan of God for your life is to have a revelation of your own depravity. It's just really good for you to realize that you not only you sin because you're a sinner by nature. And he, and he makes that really clear that even Jewish people are sinners and even religious people are sinners. And he, he makes that really clear. Even if you try hard to keep the law and you're fairly good at it, you're still a sinner. That's what he says. That's what he's doing when he gets to the end of the text that we were talking about week before Easter on on Revelation, Romans chapter 3, verse 20, let's talk about the law. 
It starts into Romans 3, 21. And, and so in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, you have a chunk, you have a section. I'm going to give a title to that section. If you're on the U version, you can look it up and you can see ahead of time what I might say today and I might not. But, but the, the first section is this, and that is, Paul is saying this, understand and embrace justification by faith. That's the first section. Understand and embrace justification by faith. That's the first section. The second section, that goes down to verse 26. So verses 21 through 26, Paul is just saying this basic thing. Understand and embrace justification by faith. You might not think that sounds so profound, but it's absolutely life-changing. I'll explain in three pictures that he gives. He gives three kind of word pictures that are embedded in this kind of legal and precise language that he's using. Three really powerful word pictures. But then when you get to chapter 3, and now you're looking in verses 27 through 31, Paul talks about three things in that section. And these three, three things, he addresses them in order to unite the church. You've got to remember, what's the author? Who's the author? It's Paul, the apostle, the missionary guy. Where is he? He's probably in Corinth. What is he doing? He's on the mission of Jesus. What's he planning to do? He's planning to go to Rome and get them to join him in the mission of Jesus. He wants them united in the gospel so that they can help send him to Spain so that he can keep the mission of Jesus going. That's what he's all about. That's the author and the authorial intent and the original audience. And to understand the passage that we want to kind of think like that. What's going on? Paul is pitching his case. He's making his case to the people. Hey, unite in the gospel. Unite in the proclamation of justification by faith. That's what that section's about. So the first section is what? Understand and embrace justification by faith. And we'll prove that that is laced throughout these ten verses. Understand and embrace justification by faith. And the second section is what? Unite in the proclamation of justification by faith. So that's what Paul is saying. Those are two of the things that he's saying. What's interesting, though, is that when he... This, this is not one of those parts in the Bible that's story, right? You know I like story, right? Anybody ever, here ever figured out that I kind of like stories? Yeah. I love stories. Much of the Bible is written in stories, much of the teaching of Jesus was done with stories. And so if you are like Jesus, you tell stories too. If you don't tell stories, then you're not like Jesus that way. I'm just saying. Okay? So, so there you go. But what's interesting is when Paul gets to this, he is not telling stories. Isn't that interesting? And no story here. This is a different kind of language. This is kind of legal language. This is precise language. This is specific language. When is it that you stop telling stories? And you start using very legal and precise language. Really important times of your life like when you get married, right? I don't want Lois to say, hey, Ken, I kind of like you. You're kind of cool. I'm going to hang with you for a while. Maybe we'll have some kids together. We'll see what happens. I'm like, no, I'm going to give you a ring, and you're going to make me a vow promise in front of people. I'm going to drag your whole family into this and my whole family into this. And we're going to call on God. And we're going to use precise legal language. And we're going to sign a document. And we're going to call the state to witness it. This is serious business, this marriage. She's regretted it ever since. But I got her bound to a promise that way. Right? I mean, she tells me that every once in a while. you know. But I'm like, too bad. But she's a woman of her word, so she's sticking with me. That's what happens when you say you're going to buy a house or a car. You're going to spend a lot of money. You, you don't want that salesman going, hey, we'll see what we can do. You know, Buy the car, and we're going to take care of you here. You're like, what do you mean take care of me? Oh, you know what I mean. We're going to take care of you. Don't worry about it. No, 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 no. Well, how long are you going to fix this car? How long is it going to be under warranty? Well, we'll just see how it goes. No, we will not just see how it goes. Put, it on, put your promise on the paper. 
Chuck, do you remember when you were buying your car and the guy made you the big problem? I'll never forget this. The guy makes you this big grandiose problem. I was sort of proud of Chuck. I'm just kind of watching. This guy, uh, this dealership up north makes Chuck a big grandiose promise. And Chuck says to him, will you put that in writing right now? Which I thought was kind of interesting. He goes, will you put that in writing right now? And the guy says, of course not. You remember that? I'm like, oh my word. That was a great question. Now, when it comes to whether or not you're going to go to heaven or hell, God says, I want to put this in writing in specific legal language so there can be no mistakes. I want this to be clear. Our God communicates. And when he communicates about salvation and heaven and hell and your disposition, you know, how you stand before God and what's going to happen in the end and are you going to go to heaven or are you going to go to hell and are your sins really forgiven and are you right with God, he inspires Paul to write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit language that is very careful and very precise and very technical and and it's very specific. So it's not a story. It's like didactic. They call it didactic part of the Bible, the teaching part of the Bible. And what we really want to do is we want to understand the stories of the Bible by listening to the didactic portions of the narrative portions of the Bible. I love them. But we understand them by studying the teaching portions of the Bible. That's what we're doing today. Now here's what's interesting though. The words that Paul uses in Romans chapter 3 and verses 21 and specifically to verse 26, three words pop up that are really technical that often people don't completely understand. And behind those words are stories. Now stories be... You knew I was going to go there, right? Behind the words are stories. So if we want to understand the technical legal language, it helps us to understand what the words mean. I want you to have a real clear and visceral feeling, understanding of what these words are. So now let's read the first chunk of the text together. It's Romans chapter 3, verse 21. And he was talking about the law silences people, and it's by the law that they have the knowledge of sin. It's not by the law that they're justified. But it's by the law that they have a knowledge of sin. That's what he just said. That all the world would be silenced before God and all the world would be guilty before God. Then he says, but now, these two words. And by the way, if you want a title of the message, that's it. The title of this message is, but now. But now is the title of the message. But now, the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law of the prophets. You told about this before. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And here comes the first word, being justified. That's the first word I want you to keep in mind. And there's a story behind that. Being justified freely or as a gift. Being justified freely by his grace through, and here's the second word, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified, redemption, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a, here's another big word, propitiation. Propitiation by His blood. Turn to the person next to you right now and explain what the word means, propitiation. Oh, it's a good thing you came to church. We'll help you with this in case you couldn't do that. Yeah, by His blood, through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right, the best way for us to explain this is to define those three words. Before we do that, though, I want to point out something that's repeated a lot. In the text, something is repeated 
a lot in there. And I want to point it out. If you had a highlighter or a pen that you could use right now, you could mark these and you could see this is a major idea. This is the major theme. You know, whenever you preach, you should look for the what's the central truth that organizes all the other stuff. What's the big idea? Remember we talked about that? Here's the big idea. The big idea definitely has something to do with justification by faith. And how do we know that? Because it's repeated throughout there. And notice where it's repeated. It says the righteousness of God is apart from the law. That's a hint that it's not by obedience to the law. But then it says in verse 22, through faith. And it says in verse 22, to all and on all who believe. And then it says in verse 25, God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. And then it says in verse 26 at the end, of the one who has faith in Jesus. And then it says in verse 27, by the law of faith. And then it says in verse 28 that a man is justified by faith. There's that phrase, justified by faith, okay? And verse 30 it says, by faith, the uncircumcised through faith. And verse 31, through faith. You get the idea? The idea is this. We're justified, which I haven't explained what justified is yet, but we're made right with God, justified. We'll talk about that in a moment. By, not by the keeping of the law, but by faith. Not by religious, religious ritual, but by faith. Not by knowing about God, but by believing that Jesus Christ died to pay the price for our sin. So that's what that section is about, right? Because it repeats it over and over again. That's what this whole section is about. Would you agree with me that, that, that I'm being accurate when I say the section that we just read is about justification by faith? It's what it's about, Okay. Now, what is that whole justification by faith? We know that we're, what is justification? So I want you to imagine three places. I want you to imagine that yourself standing in three different places. The first place I want you to imagine yourself standing, I want you to imagine that you have been charged with and you are guilty of murder and you are in a court of law and the, and the, the judge is about to render a sentence of death on you because you deserve to die because you killed someone. All right? Imagine that. Imagine you are in a court of law. Imagine that. Here's another little place. Imagine that we go to a market. It's one of those open markets in the ancient world, and things are being bought and sold. Trinkets and stuff, stuff that's not that valuable, not that important. And everybody's just kind of like, there's a buzz going on. There are chickens and goats or animals and fruit and vegetables, and there's noise and music, and it's a, it's a, it's a busy place. And everyone's kind of talking, and they're buying and selling things. But you are not there to buy and sell. You are there being sold. You are a slave. In the ancient world, in Rome, where Paul is writing Rome, a, a majority of the people were slaves. When Paul talked about slavery, he got their attention. Imagine you are in the marketplace, and you are what's being sold. And this is a serious thing. I mean, once they sell you off to somebody else, you're separated from your children. You're separated from your family. You're separated from your loved ones and your life. You're the property of somebody else. You are being sold. Imagine these two things. You're standing before a judge, and you know that you're guilty of murder, and you deserve the death sentence, and the, and the judgment is about to come out on you. You're standing in the market, and you're being sold. Somebody's going to pay a price to buy you. Okay, imagine a third thing. Imagine, if you will, that you have gone to a pagan temple. There are very few churches and lots of pagan places of worship in Rome. And pagans believed in the multiplicity of gods. False gods, right? Arbitrary gods, capricious gods, angry gods, gods that don't communicate well, gods that are silent or angry or capricious or mean, or, or gods that um, 
also sin like men and women. And you're standing in the temple of a pagan god. And imagine that you have this sense, this kind of foreboding sense of, I have to have the blessing of the gods. I have to have help from the gods. I have to have the favor of the gods. My family needs that. My children need that. My health depends on it. My well-being depends on it. My financial standing depends on if the gods are angry with me or if they're kind to me. Imagine these three things. Because these are the stories behind the words Paul says to the people, justified means that you're right with God. The root word behind justification, justified, and and behind the word righteous is the same root word. It's not the exact same thing, but it's the same root word. And the idea is you're righteous before God or justified before God or the sentence comes down in the court of law before God and you are guilty, but he says you are not guilty because Jesus Christ died So you don't have to die. So when Paul says you're justified by faith, the justified word is a court word. It's a legal word. And what he's saying is, you and I both know that you are guilty and you deserve the death sentence forever to die and go to hell forever. But Jesus Christ, when he died, but now, when Jesus Christ died, he died in your place. He took your judgment. And the righteous judge of the universe says about you, he is, she is justified. She is right with God. He is right with God. He is not guilty. That's what justification by faith means. You are not guilty before God in his court. And the Bible says, how do you get that not guilty verdict? By faith. Faith in Jesus Christ who died for you. By faith in Jesus Christ. By grace through faith, right? Imagine now, think about the, 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 that. that and that's what, by the way, look at it in verse 24. Being justified freely by his grace. And it's through Christ's death. That's why it says it's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And when we get to the redemption word, we're at another word there that has a picture behind it. So imagine you're now in this slave market and your whole life hangs in the balance and you are going to get sold off into slavery and you're going to be away from your family and you're not going to be able to do what you want to do or go where you want to go. You're going to be the property of another person. Perhaps they will abuse you. Perhaps they will kill you. You just don't know. And then someone steps up and he pays a price for you. That price is called a ransom. He pays a ransom price. And, and when you get, when somebody pays a ransom price for you and then releases you to yourself to go free, that's called redeemed, right? And that's the word that he's used here. Well, how are we redeemed? Redeemed by the blood of Christ. Redeemed by the ransom price that Jesus paid. Paul is saying to the people, you know what it's like to be a slave, And you and I both, we know what it's like to be a slave to our sin, a slave to our judgment, a slave to our guilt, a slave to our habits. And that's the biggest problem of our life, am I right? The bondage of sin is the biggest problem that we have. And he says it's not just for life, it's for eternity. You're going to be a slave in bondage to your sin forever unless somebody can pay a ransom for you. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood, he paid the ransom price for our sin and set us free. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Anybody here excited about that? Uh, me too. I, I, yeah. Oh, okay, I could sing about that for the rest of my life. I could talk about that to people. I want to let everybody know about that. I don't have to go guilty before God and be condemned to death forever. I don't have to be in bondage because of my sin. Because Jesus died for me. Because he paid the ransom price for me. 
Now I want you to imagine the whole pagan temple thing because throughout time people have been in bondage to the imaginary gods, the small g gods. This is all true. You can study civilizations and you can see that in all human civilizations there has been kind of a small g angry god religion going on. You go and you think, I, my, my life depends on whether my children survive, or my life depends on whether my crops are going to come in, or my life depends on the sun or the rain, and I have to appease the angry gods to get the God. And this is, if you read carefully, you see, this is the, dispos- this is the disposition of the heart and mind of people in paganism outside of the one true God of the Bible. This is how they all think. I have to do something to appease the gods. I have to do something to placate the, the arbitrary gods. They're angry. They're capricious. They're, they're not, they don't communicate with me, but I've got to keep them happy. So what I do is I give them a part of my crop. I, I give a, a, an offering of a part of, of the crop. Or, or I give a, a larger offering of the part of my crop. Or, or I give a part of my, my flocks to God, to the gods, small g, the capricious, arbitrary, sinful gods who don't communicate and never let me know where I stand. I'm, I'm, I'm at the beck and call of the angry gods. That's the average person that lived in Rome. That's how they understood God. The average person that lived in the world, that's how they understood God. Gods, the gods are angry with me. And they don't communicate with me. And so what happens is people begin to give gifts to their gods. And after a while, they really want to convince how their gods about how serious they are. So in history, you can read this all the time. They begin to do things to really show how serious they still do it in parts of the world today. They begin to actually cut themselves and shed blood in order to show how serious they were about placating the angry, capricious gods. I will bleed. I will shed blood. I will make offerings. And then you know in some cultures of the world, you know this is true, right? How do you go beyond that? How do you go beyond giving a gift to placate an angry, capricious God? How do you go beyond cutting yourself and shedding blood? Do you realize that people in their demonic, perverse sense of justice would actually sacrifice their own children to the angry gods? And so the whole world is living now in a kind of a high-grade anxiety, fear, because somewhere out there the, the, the gods are angry with me and they're demanding more and more of me. Now Paul, and by the way, this is the message in which the truth of God, this is the culture in which the truth of God came. And so the language of the truth of God, you notice, uses some of the same language about anger and blood and sacrifice, Right? So what happened, this makes a lot of sense. It really just occurred to me this week as I studied this passage for the first time, something that always troubled me. Why would God say to Abraham, I want you to go and sacrifice your son on an altar? It sounds like that's what pagans would do. Why would God tell Abraham, I want you to take your son and I want you to sacrifice him on an altar? How is that different than a pagan religion? Here's how it's different. First of all, God is speaking. God is telling Abraham what he wants to do. God communicated with Abraham. He actually said to Abraham, I want you to leave your father, your father's gods and idols and so forth. I want you to go. I'm going to do a new thing with you. And then when he says, I want you to sacrifice your son, Abraham goes to obey him, but God communicates with him and doesn't allow him to sacrifice his son, but instead he provides a substitute. So what God is saying to Abraham is, Abraham, I'm different than the angry God gods. 
I'm completely and totally different from that. That's not true about me. I'm communicating with you and telling you what I expect of you. And not only am I telling you what I expect of you, which is absolute, total, moral perfection and holiness, but I'm not only doing that, but I'm providing what you need to be right with me. Do you see, that's why God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac so that he could teach Abraham and us that he's not the God of the angry gods, small g. The gods are angry and you don't know how to placate them, but you're going to be in a lifelong bondage. Now, what's the Bible terminology for that? It's found right here. Being justified freely, verse 24, by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation simply means, some would say atoning sacrifice. What it means is that it's an, God sent his son Jesus to die to absorb the just wrath of God. So God isn't an angry, capricious God. God's ju- wrath is justifiable, justified. The Bible, he's already established that in verses one through, or chapters 1 through 3, that God isn't God unless he hates sin. God isn't God unless he's perfectly morally right, unless he's perfectly morally just. Why is it that it's so hard to read through the Old Testament like Leviticus? Why is that? Why is it that Leviticus includes all those little tiny, they seem like little tiny details. It's, like, it's almost like God really cares about a lot of little tiny details. What's God trying to communicate through the whole Old Testament? He is in mercy communicating his absolute holiness. In other words, the Old Testament is communicating about God, that God is perfectly holy and morally righteous, and he demands perfect holiness and perfect righteousness of everyone, and that no one can possibly ever be right with God unless they're able to present to God perfect holiness and perfect righteousness. And so it's a mercy because he gets us totally lost. Like we're drowning and we have no hope of saving ourselves, so we're willing to take any help that we can get. So when he comes along and he provides his son, he's laced the world with pictures of Jesus before Jesus came. The lamb whose blood is slain. And behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the substitute and all of those pictures, so many of them, so that people's hearts would be ready. They would have a primal instinct in their heart to be ready for when God says, and this whole long saga of sin and holiness, now Jesus, but now Jesus bursts on the scene, dies for our sin, is buried and rises again. His sacrifice is accepted by God. And we can be totally and thoroughly right with God and God's wrath is once and for all absorbed by Jesus Christ, and we don't live at the whim of angry gods. We are the children of the one true God whose wrath is satisfied by Jesus Christ. is that awesome? Now, who are you telling about that? Who does God want you to tell about that? Like, is it more important for us to tell that message or to have our preference at church? Which is more important? Is it more important with the tie crowd or the no tie crowd? Or is it more important that we just, with or without a tie, tell people that the wrath of God is satisfied? Right? You like drums in your music. You don't like drums in your music. Does that really matter? Or does it matter a whole lot more whether the music tells the story about how to be justified by faith? God's wrath is satisfied once and for all. You say, why are you bringing up that stuff? Here's why. The second section, Paul is saying, why is Paul writing this? Why is Paul writing this to the Romans? Because they're divided. 
Because they got the Jewish people over there. They're going, well, we're Jews, so we know, and kind of quietly, we kind of got an in here, and the pagans over there, they're like, there's a division. And Paul says the good theology is going to set, is going to unite the people around the one main thing, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ. Not our personal preferences, not our petty differences, not our little things we got angry about, but we get, Paul is saying the gospel is big enough to unite people in proclaiming this. So what's the first section? Understand and embrace the gospel. The second section, verses 27 and following that we're going to see, Paul is saying, I want you to be united in this cause. I'm going to come and you're going to help me go to Spain with this. So before I get there, I want you to be together on this. I want you to agree. I don't want somebody over here going, I'm proud, I'm boasting. I don't want somebody over here going, I'm a Jew. I don't want somebody going over here go, wait a minute, wait a minute, what about the keeping of the law? That's exactly what he does in the three things that he covers from verses 27 through 31. Where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No, by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So he's saying, be united and don't be, don't be um, proud and arrogant and boastful. Be united in the gospel. That's what he's saying. And then he's also saying, and don't be divided about this whole Jew-Gentile thing. Be united because they're all justified by faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? He is not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith, which is another way of saying, a poetic way of saying, Jews and Gentiles are justified by faith, not by the keeping of the law. Be united in that. That's the point he's making. Get together on that. The world depends on that. It's a life and death matter. It's a heaven and hell matter whether the church unites on the gospel and makes the gospel the main thing. That's a heaven and hell, life and death, people hanging in the balance. Who is it that wants to get us off on other things? It is not the Holy Spirit. It is not our Heavenly Father. It is not the Lord Jesus who wants to get us off on those kind of petty sidetracks. It is not of the Lord. Because what the Lord wants us on is He wants us to be all about the mission of Jesus, the gospel of justification by faith. And this is an example of that. Then he says, do we make void the law through faith, which is the original argument that he's making, because the loud voice kept saying, well, what about keeping the law? If you say a person is justified by faith, they're going to be lawless. That's the fear, right? And the fear is still, still here today, even in our church. Like, wait a minute. If we preach the grace of God, what's going to happen to the law of God? And Paul says in the last verse here, this is the only way to rightly frame the law of God. The way he says it is, on the contrary, we establish the law. And a good example of that would be like um, Ray Comfort, right? Have you ever seen him? You should baby, some of you ask me, should I watch the Noah movie? And my answer is absolutely watch the Noah movie. Watch the Ray Comfort Noah movie. Not the one in the theaters. I'm like not all excited about that. But the Ray Comfort Noah movie. It's free online. You can go on my Facebook. I, I linked it there. 30 minutes and you will just be thrilled as he talks, as, as in the days of Noah, so old is coming of the Son of Man. And so he does a good... What, what does Ray Comfort do? Ray Comfort wrote a book, a kind of well-known book, and it's called Hell's Best Kept Secret. And you know what Hell's Best Kept Secret is in a word? Say it. What's hell's best kept secret? Aren't you glad you came to church today? I'm going to tell you this and I'm not going to charge you extra. <laughs> hell's best kept secret is the law. What, what he's saying is when you use the law of God 
in order to prepare people for the gospel, that's, that's, what, that's what the devil doesn't want you to do. But what happens is when he goes out on the street and he literally goes through the law, the Ten Commandments, and people then, he's very kind to them and he's engaging and he's pretty gifted, and he gets them talking and he asks them if they have violated God's law and he goes through the Ten Commandments, and what happens often is they come to silence. You know, if you walk up to people on the street and you say, hey, can I tell you the gospel? They're like, yeah, whatever. And I, they have all kinds of reasons. But if you help somebody, under, if you silence them with the law first, then they want to hear the gospel. That's the point. They want the gospel because the law has done what only the law can do. Are we justified by the keeping of the law? No. Does that mean the law has no place and can't reveal anything about God? No. The law is good. And the law is useful. And it reveals a lot about God. And we need it. It's the schoolmaster that brings us to Christ. But then when the law has done its work, it makes us thirsty and hungry and happy and thrilled and skilled in gospel presentation. And that's the idea here. What would happen in a church if the people got together and decided they were going to be saved and thrilled and skilled in gospel presentation? What would happen if a church got together and said, this is the big deal right here. This is all we're about. We're 600 members of Good News Baptist Church, and we're all about being thrilled and skilled in gospel presentation, telling this story of justification by faith to people who need it. Who is it that needs for you to talk to them about that? Who is it in your life that God wants you to talk to about that? Who is it in your life that you should be praying for? And who is it in your life that you should be loving? And who is it in your life that you should be engaging in gospel conversation? And if they ask you about how to be saved, how skilled are you that you could take the gospel and make the gospel of justification by faith plain to them? How skilled are you? And furthermore, how thrilled are you about this? This should be an agent in our sanctification that we're so pumped about justification by faith that we actually go back to thinking and singing about that all the time because it's an agent in our ongoing holiness, our growth in Christ. And it's by faith. Did you guys ever watch the movie Tiger Town? I'm about done. Did you ever watch the movie Tiger Town? Raise your hand if you watch Tiger Town. Oh my goodness, this is kind of a shock because it's like a Detroit movie. It was an old Disney movie about um, Tiger Stadium. And here's, here's the short version. A, a, a dad would take his son to Tiger Stadium. They would watch the game. They were poor people, but they would go down to Tiger Stadium. They would watch the game. And, and one day, this boy's dad died fairly young. So now the boy is going back to Tiger Stadium alone, and he's watching the Tigers play. And he's remembering his dad. And it's so important to him because it's the connection that he and his dad had. So he sits alone up in, the, up in the bleachers in Tiger Stadium, and the Tigers have to win because his dad died, and the Tigers have to win. It's a Disney movie, right? So he's sitting there, and he has a special, the one big hitter, you know, the anchor hitter for the Tigers, just the guy that's got to get a hit. And the kid realizes that if he believes really hard, the guy gets a hit, and the Tigers win. So in the movie, the kid is like this kind of a mystical, magical thing. And the kid's up in the, back, in, in the bleachers, and he has to kind of squint, and he has to kind of go like this, and he has to believe really good. If he believes really hard, crack, the guy gets a hit, the Tigers win. And, of course, you know, in the, in the end, that's what happens because he believed really hard. Now, a lot of people, when we talk about justification by faith, they can't get w- rid of the law works thing. So what they do is they substitute a kind of works faith in the place of works. And they say, I believe, and I'm going to keep believing and believe really hard and believe really good, and God's going to love my believing. And that's not it. Because we're not saved by believing. We're saved by grace through believing. You know, the ground of our faith is the work that Christ Jesus did in the grace, the gift of God through Christ, and we access that by faith. It's a little bit like imagine that we're going to go cliff jumping. 
And, and so we, we, we get our kayaks to the place where the big cliff is, and we climb up to the top of the cliff. And let's just say you cliff jump all the time. It's just common for you. Frankly, I don't do this very often. I'm a little nervous because I know that, uh, you know, I'm going to make a really big, scary splash, and I might hurt myself. And if I hurt myself, I might not be able to swim in. So you climb up to the top of the cliff, and this is nothing to you because you're used to this. It's actually a small cliff. You get up, and you just launch. Boom, you're there. You're gone. Boom, you're, you're, the, you're in the lake. It's a beautiful, beautiful, pristine lake, mountain lake, and you're all wet. Boom, you just jump in. And I go up there, and I'm trembling like, oh, and the only thing that gets me off the rock is my pride and my ego because I don't want to be stranded up there shivering on the rock looking like an idiot. So with all that I can muster, I just have a mustard seed of faith, and I get myself off the rock. Now let me ask you a question. When I go plunging in the water, who's wetter, you or me? We're both all wet. Okay, I know it's an analogy that breaks down, but this is what we're saying about saving faith. Your saving faith isn't the thing that's the ground of your salvation, but the grace of God and the death of Christ is the ground of your salvation, and you believed you just jumped off the rock, even if it was the grain of a mustard seed. Enough faith to simply jump into the arms of Christ. Now, B. Moore is here with us today. B. and, and Jim. And, and B., of course, has been our secretary for a long time. And she has a brother. And like a lot of us, his name's Mike. And like a lot of us, um, we have brothers or sisters or loved ones that strayed away from the Lord and know better, but because of their hurt, because of their pain, because of other circumstances that come into their life, they stray far from God and then they get on our prayer list. Am I right? How many of you got a, like a brother, a sister, a loved one on your prayer list right now? So B for years has prayed for Mike, and Mike is so, he's lost everything. Job, home, marriage, family. He's homeless. Mike is homeless for years on the streets. He's homeless. He's a drug and alcohol addict. I, have, I had dinner with him the other day and asked permission to tell you this story. He gave me permission. He's ill today or he would be here. About four or five years ago, all those prayers gathered together and Mike had a desire to open up God's word. He had some people in his life that began to remind him about the gospel. And he got off the, he got right with God. He got off the alcohol and the drugs. And he's a thrill. He sits in our church service. He loves to come to our church service. Loves to hear the preaching. Loves it when I go into overtime. Real saved people always love it. Yeah. He loves it. Why? Because he's converted. Because he's justified by faith. He told me, he said, I went to this church. They were singing. Everybody was raising their hands. I like doing that. I like raising my hands when I sing. I'm like, me too. Why? Because something amazing happens when one person gets the idea of justification by faith in their heart. And they're thrilled and they're skilled to tell it. But what would happen if a couple got together and they said, we're not just going to live for ourselves, but we're going to live to make Christ known. We're going to join together as a couple to, make the, to, to proclaim the truth of justification by faith. What would happen with that couple? What would happen in that marriage? What would happen in a church like ours with 600 followers of Jesus Christ? To join this church, you have to give a testimony that you are justified by faith, that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. What would happen in this church if 600 of us decided that our top priority in life was going to be to find somebody? We were so thrilled that we get skilled and that we find somebody to make Christ known to. What would happen? There wouldn't be any empty pews. There'd be a whole lot of singing and praising going on here. 
That'd be a pretty exciting place to be. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. I think that's all that Paul was saying. Paul was saying, have you stopped for a minute and thought that you were guilty before the judge of the universe and because Jesus died for you in your place, you don't have to die? Have you stopped and thought for a minute that you were on the edge of being sold into eternal slavery to the devil in hell and Jesus Christ paid the ransom price with his blood for you? Have you ever thought lately that the wrath of God justifiably abided on you, but God sent his own son, Jesus, to step in as a substitute and absorb the wrath of God. Have you believed in that? Are you justified by faith? Do you know that you are born again? Are you sure that you personally are saved? Have you like prayed to God and said to God, God, I take that offer. I received that offer. What would happen if there was the judge's bench and then Jesus were to step up and say, I will die for him, and then you said, I'm not sure about that, I'll let you know someday. What would happen on the slave block, on the auction block, Jesus steps in and says, I will pay the ransom price, and you're like, thanks for telling me that, I'll keep it in mind. What would happen if the moment before the lightning strike of God's wrath takes you to hell forever and you pay for your sin forever because of your sin, Jesus Christ steps in and says, I will step in and I will absorb the wrath of God. And you say, that's a good thing to know. That's what a lot of people do. Some of you right now are doing that. You're sitting here and you're hearing it just to talk to you. It's just kind of like entertaining. It's like, okay, that's interesting. No, no, no. It's not interesting. It's not entertaining. It's not here. It's not, it's not, a, um, it's not an, a, a, an abstract kind of educational experience. You have to decide if you are going to face the God of the universe in judgment someday and pay for your own sins and present your own righteousness, or if you're going to appeal to his son Jesus and say, Jesus died for me. That's what you have to decide. So what is it for you right now? How many of you right now, this moment, would say, I know that I know that I have stepped across the line of faith, and I have believed in Jesus Christ, and he is my Savior. I'm thrilled, and I'm getting more and more skilled. How many of you, don't raise your hand right now, how many of you, if I ask you that question, look in your eye, you look back and you say, absolutely. But some of you would say, I'm not sure yet. Well, today needs to be the day you step across the line. That's why the Bible says in Hebrew, well, today is the day of salvation. What right-thinking person would ever put that off? Would you bow your heads, close your eyes, and I want to ask you a question. Before I do, I want to point out one little phrase in verse 26 as I ask you this question. The Bible says that because of Jesus Christ dying on the cross and offering salvation to us, then he is just and the justifier of those who believe. So if God let people off because of their sin, but he didn't pay for their sin, he wouldn't be just. And if he demanded the payment for their sin without offering a payment for the sin, he wouldn't be a justifier. But because Jesus Christ died, he is both just and the justifier of all who believe. And so my question to you is, are you one of those who believes? And now, with heads bowed, with eyes closed... I want to ask you a very personal question right now. Who's here today? There may be a handful of you. Who's here today that would say, Pastor, while you explained that, I, I went across the line of belief and I believed in Jesus Christ for my salvation. Raise your hand if that's true. While you explained it, I came to believe. Anybody like that? Amen. Heavenly Father, I want, I want to pray that the seed of truth that was sown today in the teaching of the Word of God would sprout into life and that folks would step across a line from death into life, 
from slavery into freedom, from condemnation into no condemnation, from wrath to love, 